Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. We're going to be taking your questions questions real life questions these are not just things contrived to come out of a book you know the questions you all ask as listeners are things i could not dream up but they help us all go to deeper levels of success in our own lives to come up with better answers how do we make better decisions to attract the good things into our lives by creating and delivering a plan of action can you really find work or create work that is meaningful purposeful productive and profitable absolutely yes you can that's what we're going to be talking about how to find or create work that is just such a thing hey we're going to be talking about how to get milk from a cow now, i'm an old farm kid so i know that i'm going to give you a secret on that how to get milk from a cow here's some of the questions we're going to be addressing in today's show if a person knows what they want to do can they justify taking on student loan debt interesting question Dan, in an interview, when they ask you, tell us about yourself, should someone mention that they are a competitive cyclist? I've been trying for years to start my own graphic business, graphic design business, because I think I can. Dan, how do you recommend getting started with vending in good locations? I have the chance to move into sales and potentially double my income. What would Dan do? And this one, I hope we get time to get this one. What are your thoughts on the law of attraction? Being a Christian, it makes me uneasy as if it's some sort of magic. You know, that law of attraction just will not go away. Well, that's because it was, it's been here for eternity. It's been here a very long time. It's not something that just popped up a couple years ago when the movie, the secret came out. The law of attraction has been a principle that's been in effect since Adam and Eve. So we'll talk about that. How does that work? Is that something we should stay away from? Is it something that can work for us or against us? We'll talk about that. Here's our quotation for the day. And I promised you I'd tell you this. This comes from Albert Hubbard, who says, Parties who want milk should not seat themselves on a stool in the middle of the field in hope that the cow will back up to them. All right, you got that? Parties who want milk should not seat themselves on a stool in the middle of a field and hope that the cow will back up to them. Guess what? You got to go get the cow. You got to go find her in the field, bring her into the barn, tie her up, put her in a stand of some kind, sit down, make sure she's clean, and then you milk her. That's how you get milk from a cow. It requires a whole lot. Yeah, I hear from a lot of people who are somehow hoping that the, the big, the cow of the universe here is going to just somehow back up to them and dump a load, even if they haven't gone out looking for them. Well, let's talk about that and more. This first question comes from Dale in Illinois. Dan, I'm 30 years old. I've finally found my vocation. I want to help people solve life's problems through counseling. As you know, counseling requires an advanced degree. I don't see a way of financing my master's degree without student loans. My wife and I will continue to work. She'll be returning to school as well. No kids. Once it's done, our household income will be $92,000 based on medians. After two years, my income will 
be open-ended because I can start my own practice. I'll write and speak as well as do one-on-one counseling. Two questions. Number one, if a person knows what they want to do, can they justify taking on student loan debt? Number two, could I or should I try to coach while I'm getting my counseling degrees? Well, I don't think you should take on student loan debt to get your master's degree. It just is a noose around your neck. I mean, I know it sounds logical. Well, I'm going to do that so I can double my income potential. But when you're talking about a soft skill like counseling anyway, and I'm not diminishing the value of it by any means, that's what I have my master's degree in. But I'm just saying there are so many things that are unpredictable around that. I think it's preposterous and presumptuous to assume that you're going to be at any given income level just because you have that degree. So I think it puts you in a tough position if you've taken on student loan debt to make that happen. The bottom line, though, is this is not unlike starting most businesses or whatever. I think there are ways to do it more creatively than just taking the easy path, the least resistance and just getting loans and incurring debt to make that happen. So I'm going to answer the same way as if you wanted to start your own landscaping service, bootstrap it, start with what you can start with one trailer and one little lawnmower, grow your business. Don't go out and get a $60,000 truck and a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment. And now you're locked in to servicing that debt. In addition to hoping to make a profit from your business, it's a horrible way to start as it is with most professions. Now, I, I got my master's in counseling, clinical psychology. That was about four years after getting my bachelor's degree from the Ohio State University. So we sold our little house and we sold our cars. We moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, moved into a rental house. Joanne made tailored clothing for hard to fit women. She had a sewing machine. She's a pretty decent seamstress. So she did that. So she didn't get a job. She made clothing. I got a teaching assistantship. That was part of the deal with us going to Bowling Green, Kentucky. I got a teaching assistantship that eliminated my tuition and gave me a $200 a month stipend. So we had $200 a month coming in plus the little money that Joanne generated from what she was doing. Now I mentioned we moved into a rental house. We moved into a rental house because I found a house that had obviously been neglected. It needed some work. I talked to the next door neighbors. I said, who owns this house? And they told me Juanita Kuhn. She's a wonderful lady, but she doesn't want to rent the house because she's had bad experience with college kids and she'd rather just keep it. It was their original house. She'd rather just keep it empty. I called her on the phone. I said, Hey, I'm a nice young guy. I'd like to rent your house. She said, no, I'm not renting the house to any college students. I've had bad experience. The next morning I showed up at her doorstep. I found her address Dan Meller, his wife, Joanne, and our little baby, our cute little boy, baby, Kevin, showed up at her doorstep. I wasn't pushy or aggressive. I just showed up and said, you know what? I'm an old farm kid. I'm good with my hands. I'd like to bring that house back to its original beauty. I'll uncover the patio in the back that's grown over with weeds. You know, I'll clean it up. I'll repair the chimneys. I'll paint it inside. She said, okay, let's do this. We agreed on an hourly fee that I would get for working in the house. Now it was totally unsupervised. It was totally up to me, the honor system. We lived there for two and a half years and I never paid rent, never paid a penny of rent. 
because I kept doing things to the house to make it nice. We developed a great friendship and have remained friends for years and years since then. But that's how we did. I think you've got to be creative in how you want to do this. Now, Dale, you're talking about incurring student loan debt. I looked at your blog. You're a creative guy. You talk about the fact that you can go to the Khan Academy and get expertise in pretty much any area you want to without paying anything. I mean, there's skill tests that you can take that then prepare you to clep through other academic courses that you may need. So I, I think you're just proposing taking the easy way out. Be more creative. Go ahead and get whatever degrees you want, but be more creative than that in how you're going to do that. I also went on then after I had my master's degree with no student loan debt. And I was just raised where it was it was seen as pretty ridiculous, pretty uh, a weak position to just take out loans for things that you wanted to do. So I worked to get myself in a position. That's why I've never had a car payment in my life. People today are amazed when I say that because I drive. I like to drive fancy flashy cars, but I've never had a car payment in my life. I mean, it would, I would cringe if I woke up in the morning knowing that I was paying interest on that thing sitting out there in the carport interest and it's depreciated in value. I'm thinking, what are you, are you kidding me? What did I just do? So I've just never done that. But I went on then and did my doctoral studies as well. And again, in that never incurred a penny of debt. I just paid for it as I went kept working. I think you can do the same. Well, Joyce from Florida says I worked 18 years, then home 18 years, current university job as a student accounts counselor, been there six and a half years, completed my degree in December of 2011. Uh, my son graduates in 2013. We just applied for, prom- I just applied for promotion to financial aid counselor. That new job would take a full year to learn, but I could function within a few weeks. Job is similar to what I do now, but it's more pay. It's still not something I love and it would increase pay. It improved my marketability, but I'm not looking for that as a career. I'm already focusing on entrepreneurialism, improving a 24 year old home business, firing up my business website, starting editing business. I must stay at the university though through February for son's final tuition waiver. Then I'm taking a job, leaving to take a job, at a hospital closer to home. Do I go ahead with a promotion here knowing I'll be leaving? No, absolutely not. I would not advise you to take a new job where you say it'll take a full year to learn it. And you know, you're going to be leaving in eight months. That's not reasonable for anybody involved. Now, if you were taking a position at Taco Bell or Wendy's, sure, go for it. No big deal. Come and go, but not in a professional environment. And I think if you take a position like you're describing here, there's an implied two to three year commitment. And short of that, I'd say, no, don't do that. So I would advise against that. Stay in the one you've got. And, and, and that's fine. I mean, we're talking eight months. I mean, my goodness, that's a blink of an eye. If you've got to stay in the one you've got to assure your son's tuition waiver because you're part of the university, that's cool. I mean, just focus on ramping up your business that you want to do anyway in that eight month period of time, rather than going through the learning curve of a new business and falsely uh, implying to the university that you're going to be there for a long time. Nope. Don't do that. Jim from Seattle says, I like to do road bicycle racing like your son did just not as a pro. I race happily in the old guys masters category. Well, that's a cool thing. Golly, I, I, I still love bicycle racing. Yeah, we got into BMX racing when 
Kevin, my oldest son, was 10 years old, raced for years. He and I traveled together. I raced as well, BMX. I had the number one plate in the state of Kentucky, three years running in the over 35 category. How about that? Bet you didn't know that. Yeah, I love bicycle racing, everything about it. Went out in a blaze of glory, a spectacular crash. (laughs) And I decided I don't want to do this anymore. Anyway, back to your question, Jim, in an interview, when they ask, tell us about yourself, should someone mention that they are a competitive cyclist or might that fact somehow be negative to some hiring managers and or companies? Thanks, Jim. You know, recently I wrote a blog and it was titled, can I see your resume? I'm making paper airplanes. And I talked about the fact that resumes are becoming less and less important in the hiring process. Now I mentioned in their companies like Google, here, here's, here's what I had in that blog. Todd Carlisle, Google's director of staffing reads the few resumes he scans. Now at Google, they really don't even care about your resume. They're going to look at other things, but it says he reads the few resume he scans from the bottom up candidates, early work experience, hobbies, extracurricular activities or nonprofit involvement, such as painting houses to pay for college or touring with a punk rock band through Europe often provide insight into how well an applicant would fit into the company culture. So absolutely. You can tell them that you're a competitive cyclist. Those are things that companies are looking for. They realize they're hiring a whole person, not just a set of skills. So yeah, absolutely. That's a cool thing to have there that not a whole lot of people are especially maybe at your age, I don't know how old you are, but if, if you're, um, you know, if you are in the master's category and you're a competitive cyclist, that tells me if I'm looking to hire somebody that, wow, this guy knows how to set goals and achieve them. You know, he knows how to discipline himself. He doesn't just give in to every whim and fancy that comes along. He's focused. He's disciplined. Man, that's a great skill to have and absolutely be prepared to share that, work it in in some way, even if they don't ask you about it. Chad from Kansas City. Dan, I've been saying for years that I want to start my own graphic design business because I think I can. I like my current job as a designer and the money's fine. I just think I can be happier on my own. My job, my three-year-old child, And being a husband is very time consuming and I'm having trouble finding the energy after hours to freelance with hopes of turning that into a full-time freelance consulting career. Here we got another borrowing question is taking out a small business loan to take the place of my salary for a couple years so I can work to leave the day job and concentrate on building my business during the day, a good option, or is that just asking for trouble? Thanks for what you do. I enjoy your show very much. Well, Chad, be ready for my answer. Definitely. That's looking for trouble to borrow money just to live on while you're building up your graphic design business. Nope. Not at all. Not a chance that I'm going to recommend that there's, there's no capital expense required to begin a graphic design business. I mean, assuming you already have a laptop computer, you're in business. It's not like opening a bowling alley or a hardware store where you've got a lot of capital expense to do that. I mean, I, I'm not totally opposed to borrowing money to start a business, but in your situation, what you're describing, absolutely not to just borrow money. I've seen people do this thousands of times where they get a a small business loan. The money was not really needed in their business. They just wanted to live comfortably. So they want to live on $70,000 a year just to have that kind of a lifestyle while they're trying to get the business going and they end up in the hole. They end up in the tank. 
I mean, there's not a chance in the world you go to a venture capitalist, somebody that provides money like that, that they're going to give you money to live on. No, the only money they're going to invest is going to be money to go into the business directly. And in your case, I don't see any justification for, you know, I would be more open to borrowing money if you wanted to get, Gal, you wanted to get, you know, the latest, greatest winky dinky computer with three screens because you're a graphic designer. I'd be more open to it then, even though I don't think it's a good idea. But in this case, no. I mean, increase your marketing to fill your funnel. Make this transition quicker. Don't let it just drag on forever, hoping that someday you'll move into graphic design. Increase not only your marketing, increase your belief that you really can make this transition. All you're doing here is just asking for a way to give yourself a safety net. Yeah, burn the boats. If you can do graphic design, there's no long lead startup time required. Just get out here, knock on 30 doors, fill your funnel with what you can produce, and you're in business. Paul from Maryland, Damascus, Maryland. I didn't know there was a Damascus in Maryland. My last attempt about 18 months ago at the 48 days process was not successful. I was the problem, not your process. I am trying again to use the 48 days to find work that I love. The companies I identified before are the same companies I've identified this time. Should I do something different? Is it possible I may contact the same people at these companies? Do you see this as an issue? Thanks for all you do. Love the podcast. I've been a listener since you were on the radio for three hours each Sunday. Boy, that goes back a while. Well, Paul, congratulations on recognizing you're going to get back in the game. You're going to use the 48 days process again. You've got some of the same companies on your list. Not an issue at all. If you contacted these companies six months ago, chances are infinitesimally small that anyone will remember you. Just start the job search process again this time more intelligently. You know, there's that old quotation from Henry Ford who says, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. So if you failed before, didn't really work the job search process as you should have, no big deal. Now you're a little smarter. You can do it more intelligently. Again, Henry Ford says, failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Just do it again, but no problem at all. Going right back to those same companies, not a problem. Colleen from Michigan says, Dan, I have a passion for advocating for consumers and seniors who are unable to help themselves, but recently lost my job doing just that due to severe funding cuts to legal services. I'd love to earn a living and stay true to my passion by helping others outside of the traditional lawyer client model, which my target market can't afford, but I'm stuck in a rut and can't seem to think outside the box. Do you have any ideas? Your podcast and 48 days book have been a lifeline to me over the past few months. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, vision, and passion with all of us. Colleen. Well, Colleen, thanks for your question, your kind comments. Yeah, be, pos- cre- be creative in positioning yourself. I assume from this that you are an attorney, that you're providing legal services and you're trying to serve a market where they can't afford the traditional legal services. Now, that being said, just break that down exactly what I just said. They cannot afford traditional legal services. How could you provide help to them in ways that don't require them to pay you a hundred dollars an hour? I mean, if you look at what I've done, I mean, I'm a coach, I'm a counselor. I have a counselor's heart, helped a lot of people as a volunteer before I ever turned it into a real business that I do where I earn income. 
Do I still have a heart for those people who can't afford to come see me as a coach and pay those fees? Sure. Do we have resources for them? Thousands and thousands of things. We have free articles. We have reports. We have surveys they can take. My gosh, if you got eight bucks, you can purchase some of our audio downloads. If you got 10 bucks, you're probably going to find a book or two in there. I mean, you could, there's something for everybody in there. So the key is to ask yourself, what could you provide in the way of real valuable service to those people? But you could do it in a way that didn't keep you in poverty and would be affordable for the people that you want to serve. You can do that. And I have a friend here locally in Franklin, neat guy, you'd know him if I said his name, who sings one old hymn a week using just an acoustic guitar. His daddy was a Pentecostal pastor, so he's gone back and gotten some of the old hymns. There are a lot of old hymns that you don't hear in churches anymore at all today, but there's a lot of people out there who still value those. That's one of the things my own dad, who you know died a couple of years ago at 97 years old, even when he was losing his cognitive abilities to really connect, he could sing four stanzas of any hymn you could come up with, with his eyes closed. He did, those, those were indelibly etched in his mind, those old hymns. So my friend here, acoustic guitar, he sings one hymn a week. He has over 35 people in his audience out there, old people that love the old hymns. Well, guess what? They can download and keep that song for a dollar. He doesn't keep them all archived. It's a new song, but they can keep that and their own system for a dollar. Now just think through the logistics here a little bit. What if only 10% of his listeners actually did that? Now this may be a rotating 10%. So somebody may go for six months and not download one. And then there's one they want and they pay their dollar. But let's say that just as an average 10% of his listening audience does that. They pay a dollar a week. Now we're not talking big bucks here at all. But if 10% of his listening audience of 35,000 people actually did that, eh, that's, uh, that's $182,000 a year. Now that's not bad. Getting no more than a dollar a piece from people. So the question, Colleen, is what information could you provide in a way that would have value to lots of the people you want to serve? I mean, we do lots of things here, as you probably know, about getting information out there to people to just see, is it something they even want? I mean, I've talk, talked about when I did 48 low-cost business ideas, got that out there as a free downloadable PDF, and in three weeks, over 90,000 people downloaded it. That told us, wow, people really want this information. So then we brought it back in, we cleaned it up, we make it available as an electronic or a physical download. I think it's 17 bucks, and lots and lots of people purchase that. So it's not a fee that they would have to pay to come into me for counseling, but it's a way for me to share with them a whole lot of ideas that can help them. So look at how you can frame your expertise, your advice in similar ways that would help your audience without making them poor and ways that will still create significant income for yourself. Look for and solutions, not either or. Well, here we got a question from Jacob. Jacob in Mesa, Arizona. Dan, I always hear you talking about how vending is a good business. And I think it would be a great business to get started in, but I'm not sure how to get started. It seems like any location with a good amount of traffic already has vending machines. 
How do you recommend getting started in good locations? Yes, I do. I do love vending. I mean, vending is still one of the three biggest millionaire makers in America. I mean, it's estimated that over $700 million pass through vending machines each week. Now, I'm going to expand your thinking on what vending is here in a little bit anyway. But when we think about just the normal things, you know, you want a bag of M&Ms, you want some Doritos, you want a pack of gum, you know, you want some breath mints and a can of Coke. I mean, those are all kinds of things that we typically tend to get from vending machines. So, yeah, it's a great business. You've already touched on one of the issues here, and that is location. And I've seen people who have gotten vending machines and this is really common because you still see those great ads in the back of magazines. Hey, all you have to do is collect the money. Boom. Just put these vending machines out there. Well, it's not that easy because you need a great location. And I knew a guy one time who got like half a dozen Tic Tac machines. You know, the little Tic Tacs, breath mints. Well, they were 75 cents. So now think about this a minute. So you have to have, I mean, it doesn't make change. It's not a complicated enough machine to make change. Do you have to have three quarters? It would only accept quarters. You have to have three quarters in your pocket. I mean, I can go for six months and not have three quarters in my pocket with little use of cash anyway. And then having to have the same in that amount, that denomination. And usually at the end of the day, I throw whatever change I have into a pickle jar that we take out when we go on cruises. Then we pull that out as just fun money when we're on a cruise somewhere. So I can go a long time without three quarters in my pocket and chances are you will as well. How is he going to find prospects for his Tic Tacs when they have to have three quarters in their pocket? Then the other question is, where are you going to put those? Well, he had a couple friends that had businesses, but let's say that you have a, a company that has 300 people in it. So you have it in a central location. You have it in the kitchen or the canteen area or whatever. Tic Tacs. How many people in those 300 are going to have a really strong desire for Tic Tacs in the course of a day? Very, very few. How many of them are going to have three quarters in their pocket? Very, very few. I mean, it's a horrible business, a horrible selection of a vending machine, period. I mean, you would have to have that in the front door of a Walmart where you have guaranteed thousands of people every day going past there. And the other part of that is there's no way in the world you're going to get a machine like that in the front door of Walmart. Walmart knows those machines are profitable. When you walk in the front doors, guess who owns them? They do. They aren't going to turn that over as a profit center under their real estate. So anything that you have in a big business like that or in a franchise company is likely to already control the vending. If you go to, you may think, well, wow, here's a university, Vanderbilt university. They've got all these students. Boy, I can just stick one of these in one of the buildings down here. Nope, not going to happen. They contract for vending control of the entire university. So as an example, you aren't going to see on a university like that, both Pepsi and Coke, they contract with one. You aren't going to see the other. They don't just open it up to everybody. That's the power of having an exclusive agreement in a contract, which they're going to do. And that's a totally different kind of bending than what you're talking about is just a mom and pop operation. So I, I'm told you all these reasons that won't work. Here's why it will work. Now in, in the introduction, I think it's to no more dreaded Mondays. I talk about my own first experience in vending that being I responded to one of those ads in the back of a magazine. I took $1,800 that I had received as a grant 
to go to college, to go to Ohio State University as a freshman, because I was a poor farm kid, but had good grades. So I got $1,800 grant money. Well, I'm an entrepreneur, man. Am I going to let that money sit in the bank? No, it's going to burn a hole in my pocket. I can turn that into more money. I responded to one of the little ads in the back of a magazine and I bought 10 hot cashew machines. Now I'll go through this story quickly. If you've read it in there, I won't bore you with the details, but anyway, true to their word, they sent a representative from the company to help me place those machines. This guy was lit when he arrived and he proceeded to put those machines in sleazy kind of places around town in Mansfield, Ohio, places that I was terrified to even go into as a, a shy, introverted little Mennonite kid. But he put those things in these sleazy bars around town, hot cashew machines. Well, he kept his word. All right. Guess what happens to cashews if they aren't turned about every 12 hours? They mold. I got calls immediately from those places saying, get these machines out of here. Our inebriated customers are ticked off because they're getting moldy cashews out of your machines. I took those things, never placed them anywhere else again and at all, hid them in a corner of the chicken coop. My dad never knew till his dying day. I did that stupid thing and I sold them essentially for scrap metal. So I lost my $1,800 grant money. Now that, that having been said, So obviously I hate vending. I'll never do vending again. No, that's not the Dan Miller approach. Dan Miller approach is, wow, what can I learn from that? Well, I learned not to expect the people you buy the machines from to be responsible for placing them. That's my responsibility. I have to take responsibility for that. How can I get those in better places? How can I explore vending to maybe do it in a way that is a little unique? Ooh, let's fast forward to the future. Many of you have taken from our site, the 48 days personality profile. It's a totally electronic process. Now think about that. We have that system installed in companies all over the country. Companies like Allstate Insurance, State Farm, mortgage companies, banks, churches, and so on. Essentially, we have installed in their company a vending machine. They use the inventory when they run low on inventory, they have to contact us. We have to restock it. Now, fortunately in this particular example, we don't have to back a a truck up to the dock and haul cashews across town and put them in the machines. It's an electronic vending machine, but it is every bit as much a vending business as what I had with those cashew machines. I've just taken advantage of technology to do it in a way that makes the logistics a whole lot easier and makes our upscale potential a whole lot easier as well. The profiles that we sell, which I will affirm is a vending machine in our business is the highest profit area. Well, I shouldn't say that. I should say we do more volume. We sell more of those reports than we do any book that I have singularly. So it's a very, very high profit center for us and it is a vending machine. So I'm saying, look for ways to be creative at how you could get involved in vending. There's a whole lot of things you can do today that are not just the old nuts and bolts. Gee, you got a bubble gum machine somewhere and you hope some kid comes by and tugs at their daddy's shirt sleeve. Nah, it's pretty tough with those, but vending still is a very, very profitable industry. Look for ways to do it creatively. Well, Joe, I got a little carried away on that. Sorry for the long answer. Steve from Michigan says, Dan, I have an idea for a company that would allow people to make payments. Now stick with me on this. So let's listen to what he's laying out here. 
I have an idea for a company that would allow people to make payments all year long to it. And then the company would pay their property taxes and homeowners insurance when they come due. I'm concerned that this will be a lot harder than it sounds due to any possible government regulations concerning taxes. I'm also concerned that there may not be enough people out there that may want this service. I'm considering charging one half to 1% of the home's value per year for this service. One final concern is the cost of startup. Is this something that could be done at home with a good Excel spreadsheet when starting up? Or do I need to have software developed? I want to double my income, pay off my debt, and then transition to my own company full time. Steve, I commend you on wanting to transition into your own company. And I think this ought to be the first of 20 ideas that you come up with. Don't stop here. I think this, I think without already being in the banking or mortgage business, this is going to be a very tough business. You don't need to develop new software. There's tons of software programs that do exactly what you're talking about. I mean, for one thing, anybody who has their percentages and the companies vary a little bit, but there's a whole lot of people who are required by their mortgage company to escrow their taxes and insurance. So it's already in place any company that you have a mortgage with, it's a very easy add on to do that. Or you can just ask your bank to just withdraw from your checking account enough money. So you have in an account, just like a Christmas account, the money that's there. But I I think as an individual to come in and find that little gap of people who may not have, who may not be forced to do it already with their mortgage company and they choose to do it and then be willing to pay you for it. Yeah. I think that's a neat on a haystack. I think this is a really tough business. And then you say that you are considering charging one half to 1% of the home's value per year. So that would mean, golly, that would mean on a $400,000 house, let's say that's going to be from two to $4,000. And there is no way in the world somebody's going to pay that for that kind of service. It just, I mean, if you can get, there are companies out there that'll do this for like $350 for one thing. So that's what your competition is. So from that, you can see the numbers that are required to make this a real business. I think it's a really, really tough sell and, and not a business that I would recommend at all. Well, let's do a little transition here. You're listening to 48 Days Online Radio with Dan Miller, your host. We're talking through questions that you, the listeners, have submitted. I love every week opening that email account, going through the questions that you're sending in here that we're going through. If you got a question, go to the 48days.com link. Click on the podcast link there and you'll see a little box jump up when you could submit your question. I'd be delighted to consider that for an upcoming show. Daniel, let me get through a few more. Daniel from Nolensville, Tennessee says, currently I work in the finance side of a digital advertising company. While I'm comfortable and competent in my work, quite frankly, I'm bored to death staring at spreadsheets all day long. Recently, an opportunity has presented itself, which would allow me to explore B2B or business to business sales by helping build out our small and local business sales team. I have a passion for the product and believe wholeheartedly in what we have to offer right now. I make a yearly salary of 51,000 making this move would mean taking a base cut of 35 to 40%. But so you're going to go down to let's say even 30, $30,000, but with the upside potential to make twice my current salary, what would Dan do? Dan would look at that guy in the mirror and ask himself, am I a great candidate for this position? Is it really reasonable for me to move from the financial side of the business to the sales side? 
that typically requires much different skills. Somebody who's good in finances, it tends to be really good with the logic and detail and analysis. Somebody good with sales usually is real emotional, kind of the big picture person. They're an influencer. They're the backslapper. They're the schmoozer. They like to go to parties, take people to lunch. Those are usually skills that are much, much different from somebody who's been good in finances. Now you're the only one that can answer that. So do I believe in the potential of sales? Even if you're going to lose part of your base? Absolutely. Sales is the biggest equalizer to lead people to big income. I mean, you can have a sixth grade education or a PhD and in three months you're in level playing field if you're in sales because you're being paid, you're being paid for your ability to produce results rather than being paid for your time. But be realistic about your fit for sales moving out of finances. If you are on the DISC, a high SC, which would be a good fit for finances, that's going to make it hard to be successful in business to business selling. You ought to be high in D and I in those characteristics. Now, if you don't know, jump into the 48days.com site, look at the, the personality profile there, do the sales report, and it'll tell you exactly what kind of selling you would be a candidate for. Now, if you've been in finances and you want to move into selling, then I would also recommend that you're looking at a selling product. And I don't know what it is that you have here, but that you're looking at a product where it's high price with few customers, where it's not bubble gum, where everybody's a candidate, where you're knocking on 30 doors a day, but rather where, where you're selling pacemakers and you know there's only eight cardiologist in the entire region of Nashville. So they're your contacts. That's a better selling plan than something where you're just, you know, selling copiers or computers or something to a broad based business market out here. So look at yourself, ask yourself, am I a good fit for this? That's where you get the right answer to your question. Alan from Nashville says, I have an unusual habit of doodling on styrofoam cups. It started as a stress relief at work, but has grown into something I do in my free time now. Several people have asked me to make them a cup and have suggested that I sell them. Any suggestions on how I can get exposure out of work? Yeah, I've got a whole lot of suggestions how you can get exposure outside of work. Look at the work that Scott Adams has done. Now you should recognize that name if you're a doodler because he's the one that was sitting around doodling, ignoring the work he was supposed to do and created the little thing we call Dilbert. Pick up a couple of his books and you'll get a first-hand account of how he turned his doodling into a massive business. I mean, you can see the Dilbert Cartoons, books, calendars, scratch pads, mugs, hats, games, mouse, pad, mouse pads, bags, clocks, calculators, candies, bobbleheads, squeeze toys, candles, greeting cards, breath mints, and I'm just starting on the list. I mean, if you use a Dilbert cartoon in a keynote or PowerPoint presentation, there's a licensing fee, and it's a significant licensing fee. I mean, that's how he's captured massive, massive, in, that's a big business, Dilbert is. Trust me, it's a big business. If you want to use 
one of his strips and you're going to make a presentation inside your company to the 80 people that work there, you have to pay a licensing fee. It's a copyright violation for you to show that up on a screen. Now, does that ever get done? Sure, it gets done thousands of times, but that's another story. But really, there's a licensing fee. Here's an example. In my books, I use a lot of quotations and frequently cartoons, graphs, sketches, and so on. Well, I go and look for the licensing agreements for those. You don't just slap those in books because they're out there readily available. doesn't matter if they're on the internet, there are licensing fees involved. To use a Dilbert cartoon, which would be a great fit for books, you know, that I write, Red of the Day, No More Dreaded Mondays, 48 Days to the Work You Love, the new one, Wisdom Meets Passion. I mean, I'd love to use some Dilbert cartoons in those, but, but it's like $600 a piece for those. It's astronomical. If you can position yourself to have that kind of exposure in all these arenas, you know, you can make millions doing this. So be creative at how you're looking to do that. Now, incidentally, in No More Dreaded Mondays, I used a lot of Ashley Brilliant cartoons. Ashley Brilliant, he's a guy, and does just amazing sarcasm and humor in his cartoons, and they are work-related. So if you have a copy of No More Mondays, scan through that. I used about 15 of them in there. But now those I paid because I used a whole bunch of them. I paid, I think it was like $50 a piece for those. So it wasn't exorbitant to use those. But yeah, I love to use things like that. And if you get some kind of attract, some kind of traction like that, what you want to stay away from is doing your doodling and selling them one at a time. There's no way to scale that. But look at what is it that you can doodle that people really respond well to. Could you put that on a t-shirt or on a mug or a hat or make a calendar of them or make 365 of them as a daily flip thing that you do? Put a little comment or quotation with each one and you got a little yearly flip chart for people. The thing to do is model. Now I talk a lot about one of the key characteristics of highly successful people is that they find someone who is performing at the level at which they want to perform and you spend time with that person. The basic premise of Tony Robbins success is modeling. I mean, he's very open about that. Find someone who's already doing what it is you want to do and model that behavior. That's what you want to do with your doodling. Just find a couple of people who have already knocked it out of the park with that, with their doodling and duplicate some of the things that they're doing. Very realistic approach. I don't, I'd love to see you be the next Scott Adams. Keep me posted as you have success in that arena. Amy says from Knoxville, you often refer to the value you place on reading. How do you keep track of or condense the ideas you glean from reading? I will admit that I come across many more ideas than I can actually implement. What systems do you use to put a new new idea into place? Thanks, Amy. Well, yeah, I, I use... I still like to read real books. You've heard me talk about that. Yes, I've got an iPad and yes, I've got a Kindle, you know, I've got those things. But if there really is a book that I even scan through that I really enjoy, I'm going to buy the real book anyway. I'm going to buy the book so I can go through the pages. And when I get to those things that I really value, I put a post-it note tab there so that I have books on my shelves that I may have read three years ago. And that's got 20 tabs on it. I can go and pull that book out and instantly be reminded of why I thought that book was important then without having to go through the whole thing. That's how I write. That's how I write new content. I write sitting in the midst of 
thousands of books that I have where I can walk to the shelf and think, wow, I read something in the John Maxwell book, Talent is Not Enough, 10 years ago, and I'm writing about that, that issue about how really successful people all of a sudden are in the gutter and I'm trying to figure out why don't they just bounce back up? And he talks in that book. Uh Uh-huh. I remember that. He talks in that book about talent is not enough. We also have to be making deposits of, of success in character, integrity, personal relationships. That book may shed light. I can go right there and I can pull that out. And in three minutes, get some key morsels out of that book that I may use in new writing. So that's how I do it. Yes, I know you can tag things in Kindle and on your iPad, but it's just not the same. It's not the visual ready reference that I have with physical books. How do I put new systems into place? I implement a lot of things immediately. I mean, years ago, probably 12 or 13 years ago, I read an article in Inc. Magazine and it said, when you decide that you're going to do something new, ask yourself, what am I going to unplug? That has been a profound principle for me that I implemented immediately and have used ever since then. So when somebody says, gee, we want you to serve on this committee or, or a publisher says, gee, we want you to produce a new manuscript. I have to ask myself, okay, I can't just keep adding things on. That's unrealistic. And I don't want a business that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger or that I overwhelm myself with things I commit to. So I ask myself, okay, if I'm going to serve on this committee or if I'm going to speak at this place, or if I'm going to write this project, what am I going to stop doing that I'm doing now? Now that also, another principle I learned back then was, and this I use every year, every year in November, as I'm finishing up my goals for the upcoming year, I'm looking at what is the 15% that I'm doing now that I'm going to discontinue in the new year? What is it that in my business, 15% of what I'm doing, I'm going to discontinue. Now that has included over the years, some things that are very lucrative, very satisfying, but there's no way that I can add new things in unless I decide very strategically, here's 15% that I'm going to stop doing. Now I'm already looking at things in this year, this I'm speaking in June, mid June, I'm already looking at the things this year that I'm going to discontinue next year. I already have my eye on a couple of things that I think I'm going to discontinue that allows me to open up that area. Then that 15% to some new things I want to bring in. Great question. One more. Hey, I'm going to squeeze this one in yet. Eric says, what are your thoughts, thoughts on the law of attraction? The thought that many self-improvement writers seem to forward being a Christian, it makes me uneasy as if it's some sort of magic. Now the law of attraction has been extremely popular in the last few years. I mean, we've seen things like the secret, but keep in mind, this is not really anything new. I mean, we'd like to think, oh my gosh, here's something brand new. And they tried to present it as such when the secret came out. It's really not. I mean, go back to Proverbs 23, seven in the Bible as a man thinketh in his heart. So is he. Is the law of attraction just a new hip hop version of Proverbs 23, seven? I mean, now the law of attraction claims that you can think about a new Mercedes and then go sit on your butt in the living room and it's just going to appear in your driveway. I mean, that's nuts. I mean, if that's where you go with the law of attraction, yeah, it's garbage. It's some kind of magic, but how does being a Christian, how does our thinking play out in predicting what we will experience? in business, in health, spiritual vitality, family, and personal relationship. Does our thinking really have an important part in determining those things? Well, I think it does. I mean, we move toward what we focus on. 
So let's say that you want to lose weight. So you say to yourself, I'm not going to eat donuts today. Guess what you think about all day? Donuts. I mean, that's, that's not a good way to lose weight. You don't focus on what you don't want to do. You focus on the new you and who you are. You focus on how delicious an apple is. I don't think the law of attraction is magic at all. Now, again, if you just sit in your house and hope for a Mercedes to appear in the driveway, you have to believe some kind of magic is going to happen. But if you go down uh, to the local dealership and you sign up for a lease on a new Mercedes at $900 a month and you make $1,500 a month, don't think that's the law of attraction either. And don't think that's God's providence. Unfortunately, I hear that. Gee, I'm broke, but I went down here and man, they sold me a brand new car. God provided me a car. No, God was trying to close the door. You made a stupid decision in doing that. I mean, it's not the law of attraction or God's providence in that. No, you know, that's just allowing yourself to be taken advantage of. But if you create a plan of action where you're going to, let's say you're going to mow 10 lawns every Saturday at $60 each and you save that money for 12 months. So the whole time you're thinking about that Mercedes that you want, boy, you can visualize, you know what color you want. So you're thinking about it. That's the law of attraction. You're focused on that. You mow 10 lawns every Saturday at $60 each. You save that money for 12 months. You're on eBay going around like I do pretty much every night. You get familiar with the prices on there. And then you take that $28,000 that you saved up and you buy a really cool 500 SL. Yes, that's the law of attraction at work, but in a positive way. Yes, that's Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I don't think there's a conflict. Can it be misused? Can it be misinterpreted? Absolutely. Can we use it to our advantage and move to do those things that matter in life? Move to levels of success and how we're making the world a better place? in terms of what we're accomplishing personally, in terms of what we do financially and in our own health, everything is based on what we start with in our thinking. I mean, and and certainly that incorporates the principles taught by Earl Nightingale, but then Christian preachers like Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Shuler built their entire careers around possibility thinking and we become what we think about. So no, it's not some spooky kind of thing to hide in the closet. Just frame it in a way that lines up with your faith beliefs and use it in a way that allows you to go into new levels of success. Well, great questions as always. Dan Miller, your host here in 48 Days Online Radio. Jump into the 48days.net community. If you aren't already, see what's happening there. A lot of people who are figuring this whole thing out, having a lot of fun in the process. Hey, send me your podcast questions. I'd be delighted to answer those. And have fun in this process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and profitable.